Um, well, this week we are finishing a part, uh, a second part of a conversation we've been having as a church around the Tiriti or Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, and what that means for us as a community. So, for, if you missed it a couple of weeks ago, um, we showed a video of Jay Ruka, um, who shared the story of Waitangi and the story of the treaty, but from a really, really helpful perspective, particularly for us who are part of the church. It was really cool, eh? We learned, did anyone learn something new in that conversation? It's really good, eh? And I know that a few of us have like went and bought, uh, purchased his book, Huia Come Home. Really, really good. I think there's a reading group that's looking at starting here on Sunday mornings to go through that book together. So if that's something you're interested in, that could be really, really cool. Um, so we're talking around what, is this, what does the treaty mean? And for us as a church, what role do we have to play in it? And this week I want to acknowledge that often when I hear conversations and when I talk about this with other church leaders, one of the most common questions that people ask me is, why do we have to talk about it? Like, as a church, why do we have to spend time talking about this? Like, one of the, a common question that people would ask me or would, that you'd hear in forums and even as pastors talk together is, look, we're the church and our message should be primarily about the gospel, right? Our job is to get out there, proclaim the gospel, save people's souls, and that's our core business. Everything else outside of that is not our core business. So it can often be like when it comes to issues of justice or racial reconciliation or biculturalism, it can be like, that's good, but often it's really controversial. And you know, people can get in fights about that. Like often at dinner tables around families, we get in fights about that. And whenever there's conversations around Maori wards, it gets really, really tricky. And why should the church unnecessarily compromise our core message, which is God accepting people and bringing them into heaven? Why should we compromise that by risking going into some of the stuff that could be perceived as social justice? Does that make sense? It's a, it's a fair question, and it's that question that I want us to wrestle with today. Why is this a central thing that we at Golden Sands Baptist Church need to grapple with, right? So to, to talk about the why, I first need to talk about um, glasses. Now, I have been blessed with 20-20 vision. I'm very fortunate. It is lovely. My mother was blind as a bat. She had to wear, like, thick-rimmed when she was a kid. Her glasses were literally like the bottom of Coke bottles to, like, look through. But I've never had to do any of that. And so because of that, I am terrible when it comes to sunglasses. I lose them, and I'm useless at wearing them because I'm not used to having something on my face. And so one of two things happens. One, I'll take them with me and think, oh, I'm going to be driving, I'm going to be outside. I'll take these sunglasses with me, and then I never put them on, and I'm that guy who's wearing a hat backwards, squinting into the sun, while my sunglasses are in my back pocket. Because I just forget about it all the time. Or I have the opposite problem, which is like, I might go driving, and I'll be like, oh, it's bright. So I put on the sunglasses, and then I'm driving, and I'm driving, and I'm driving, and then I finish driving, and it's getting late in the day, and I get into the house, and I'm trying to get things ready, and I'm working here, and I'm trying to get things done, and all I can think is, gosh, I can't see a thing. It's so dark. Have you ever done that? You're driving, and you're like, why can I not see anything? And I'm literally looking around, like, I'm flicking on lights, trying to do stuff, and it's only usually once Haley or someone else comes and texts me, he's like, well, take off your flipping sunglasses. Oh, <laughs> sorry, because I just forget that I have them on. They become, I'm just used to it, and that's the way that I see. And today, it's a really helpful metaphor because when we talk about a journey around like biculturalism or Tatiriti or Waitangi or any of those conversations, there's a moment where we need to recognize that each and every one of us wears glasses. Each and every one of us carries cultural glasses 
that we just cannot take off because we are just so used to seeing the world this way and these glasses stay on and it's the way that we see the world. And the challenge is, is that we all think we see the same thing, but we definitely don't all see the th same thing. Did you as a kid ever have that debate, which is, look, I see, um, I see this color and I call it brown. You see this color and you call it brown, but what if the brown that you see is actually red, but because of school they've taught us that it's brown, so we all use the same language? Has anyone ever had that debate as a kid? I thought I was the only one, and then I found out that everybody thinks that, and I was like, oh, I'm not special. Um, but when it comes to conversations around culture and faithfulness to the gospel, often that's what really, really happens, is each of us are wearing cultural glasses through which we look at this text. And we can both look at this text the same way, and peoples of two different cultures can see radically different things. And then we argue tooth and nail about it because each one of us is looking at our glasses. There's a great example of this that, was, um, that came through uh, with a guy named Mark Powell. He did some research um, in a really, really fascinating way looking at how we look at scripture through different cultural lenses. And I've shared the story with a few of you, but it's really, really helpful. He told people, he was talking with seminary students in America, so people training for ministry, and he was reading them the story of the prodigal son. And then once he read them the story of the prodigal son, he then wanted them to retell the story of the prodigal son to one another. And it was really straightforward. So he'd get up and he'd read it. He'd be like, there was a man, Jesus said, there was a man with, who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything that, that he had, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And it goes on. So Mark Powell got the American students to retell that story to one another. And the way that they told that story went something that a lot of us are familiar with. They said, well, you know, there's a father, he had two sons, and one of the sons wanted to go off on his own, so he took his inheritance and he went off to a foreign land and he wasted his money on like wild living and booze and beer and all that stuff. He wasted his money. Oh, I love kids. And once he'd wasted all of that, he realized, oh, I have nothing left. So then he was working, couldn't get any food, and he thought, I need to go back to the Father and give my life back to him. One thing that was fascinating for Mark when he told this story is that as he went through of it, out of a hundred students who told the story, not a single one mentioned that there was a famine in the text. Did you pick up on that? In that text, after he spent his stuff on wild living, it says, uh, he spent an, on wild living, after he'd spent everything he had, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Six out of a hundred students remembered the fact of the famine. 
He then went to Russia and worked with another student of a group about 50 Russian students there. And he had Russian students do the exact same thing. He read the story to them, and then he had them retell the story to one another. Of the 50, 42 Russians all noted the famine. Six Americans, 42 Russians, seeing scripture, but seeing it completely differently. When Americans would tell the moral of the story, the challenge was is that the son went out, took his inheritance, and he wasted it. He squandered it on immoral living, and he wasted his potential. And only once he recognized the wasteful things that he'd done, then he went back to the father and was reconciled. The Russians told that story completely differently. For the Russians, the biggest problem was that he took his inheritance away from his family that he separated himself from his community of origin. It was effectively saying, I care about my things more than my relationships. And then when famine hit, the Russian re they realized that things are not sufficient. It's relationship that sustains us with one another. And so this, the great sin for the Americans was that he was wasteful with his money. The great sin for the Russians was that he desired to be utterly self-sufficient to himself. Two eyes looking at scripture same scripture, completely different outcomes. Fascinating, eh? We all wear glasses when it comes to scripture. And today I would like to lovingly confront maybe one of the, the blind spots that for those of us who are from a dominant or majority culture, often this can be a blind spot that we have, is that when we talk about the gospel, one of the ways that we talk about it, oh, I missed that slide. Oh yeah, here, this is what the Russian student said. His mistake was leaving his father's house in the first place. His sin was placing a price tag on the value of his family, thinking that money was all that he needed from them. Once he had his share of the family fortune, the family itself no longer mattered. In a phrase, his sin was wanting to be self-sufficient. Fascinating, eh? Wildly different way from how I heard it as a kid. Now often when we think about the New Testament and we think about the gospel, if you come from more of a British or American history, one of the things that we talk about, the gospel is about God saving you. It's about us having a personal relationship with Jesus. It's about the forgiveness of sins, the atonement of Jesus, so that we can be reconciled to the Father and one day live to be with him in heaven. And that's often when we talk about the core element, that's what we say. And that's important. That's not bad. But we also have to recognize that that's also a pair of glasses. Because when you read the New Testament, Racial reconciliation is utterly central to basically the entire New Testament. Nearly every book that we grapple with, the context that they're wrestling through is how to be racially reconciled to one another. If you don't believe me, uh, Acts. We read Acts and we read about Paul's missionary journeys, right? Incredible. God does amazing things. Uh, Peter gets this vision about this like tarp coming down and he's supposed to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius and his family. So Peter goes and he preaches the gospel and everyone from Cornelius' family gets saved and everyone's mind's blown because they're all Gentiles. And we read that and we're like, cool, God's saving souls. I like that. Healings. Boom. Like it. Heaven. Relationship. Got it. Or Paul goes out on his missionary journeys. He goes to Antioch. He goes to Syria and he proclaims the gospel and all kinds of people come to faith. And that's really encouraging. And we read that and we really, really like that. We see the gospel outworking. But do you know what the first major issue that the New, the New Testament church had to grapple with? The first biggest thing that they could not reconcile and they had to have a whole council together, it was around what to do around the racial differences of people who were being saved. And it grounded around Gentiles 
who were utterly not Jewish, and Jews, who at that time were the majority group in the Jesus-following community. They were the dominant culture. It was their history. They met in their synagogues. They had this place of power. And lots of the Pharisees and those who became to follow Jesus said, great, Gentiles are following God. This is amazing. They want to follow the Messiah. This is great. Let's get them circumcised. Let's get them reading the Torah. Let's get them going to synagogue. Let's get them not eating these foods. And they'll be perfect. And Paul was like, no, we can't do that. We can't make the Gentiles become like the Jews in order to be saved. And so at the Council of Jerusalem, all the church leaders are there and they are duking it out. They're trying to figure out what do we do? And it's there that they finally say, um, Peter tells his story about how God poured out the spirit over Cornelius' family. And then James spoke up and said, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. As it is written, God is calling a people to himself. He quotes some scripture. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. That's it. So James and the leaders decided, no, the Gentiles do not need to become like the Jews in order to be part of God's family. They can worship God in ways that are native to their culture, to their understanding, and God can be faithful to them. Case closed, right? Perfect, done, easy sailing from there. They decided it, that was gonna be clear, right? No. Honestly, I could walk you through almost every New Testament letter, the background to the fights and the struggles are often racial reconciliation. I mean, scriptures that we know and love, Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Oh, what a gospel passage, right? You can imagine Martin Luther, the great reformer, reading that and being like, this is the gospel, but he would say it in a very angry way because Luther was kind of rude. Um, and we get excited about that. Look at that. See, clearly, that's the core message of the gospel. That's it. God reconciling people. Personal relationship with Jesus. But do you know what the verse right before that is? There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What Romans is, often when we look at Romans, we think this is Paul's great theological letter where he lays down the theology of salvation and atonement. And it's true. He does do that. But if you follow the path of Romans, the first thing that Romans, he says in Romans chapter one, is he said, hey, the Gentiles, y'all are messed up. You just, you're real messed up. You do all kinds of crazy things and you're deserving of God's judgment because you're messed up. And all the Jews are feeling real good about themselves. And then in chapter two, he turns and looks at all the Jews and say, hey Jews, y'all are messed up. You think you got the circumcision, you think you have the culture and the culture is gonna save you, but it's not. Clearly, you're still rotting from the inside. And then he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul then spends the rest of Romans building a theology of reconciliation so that Jew and Gentile can learn to live and worship together in a new community. Fascinating, right? But our glasses don't often let us see that. Uh, another passage, Galatians. Oh, Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. What a great gospel text again. 
the slavery of sin, how we're bound to our addictions, but it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So if we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there we might be free in order to live the, God that ha- the life that God has planned for us. We can have that personal relationship with God. That's great. Do you know the verse right after that? Right after that. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery? Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. Paul's writing to the Galatian community that was predominantly Gentile, and a a, a community of faith had started there and it was going great, and then at some point, some very culturally Jewish Christians came along and started telling them that if you really want to follow Jesus, you must now start following all the laws of the Torah. You must engage in the circumcision. You must do these things. And once you do those things, then you'll be reconciled by God. And Paul is furious about it because he says, no, for us to be part of God's family, we do not need to fit into the dominant majority culture. That's just categorically not how it works. And if we have to change ourselves to fit the dominant majority culture, then it is not Christ who saves us. It is our works. And if it's our works, then it is death. This is a racial text. But we don't often see it that way, do we? Finally, another one, Ephesians. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do so. Again, what a great salvation text. I have heard that text preached with a call to repentance, a call to follow God, to give your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that's great. That's not bad. But do you know the verses that immediately follow on from that? You might be sensing a trend. The verses right after, it's a bit small, but I want to read it because it's important. Right after that, save through faith. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, so Jews and Gentiles, um, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made the dividing wall of host- uh, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And hear this, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Again, this is a text geared towards racial reconciliation. And what's fascinating, if you can go into the Greek, it's a nerdy thing, you don't have to do it. But when he does like Paul throughout Ephesians, he says co-heirs, co-owners, co-workers in the gospel. He's using this like He's using Greek in this fascinating way where he keeps adding this word sin, S-Y-N, like synonymous, that prefix. He starts adding it to all these other words in a way that wasn't commonly used. And that's not to say that when they become one, that they all become one new homogenized culture and everyone thinks and talks the same. In that co-working language, it means that each maintains their distinctions. Each maintains their uniqueness, their culture, their way of seeing the world. And in their differences, God weaves them together so that neither one is lost or burdened by the other, and they form a new sort of humanity. This isn't assimilation. This is something completely unique in the gospel of Jesus Christ.
We often don't see it. If I had the time, I could take you through nearly every book of the New Testament. And I, I mean, Timothy, he talks about it. James talks about it. Revelation, when we did Revelation at the church, do you remember that amazing passage where they see the 144,000 carrying all the Jewish emblems and the palm fronds? It's a very Jewish nationalistic vision. And then when John hears of that community, he turns and he looks and he sees a multitude of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. A new humanity born out of God's kingdom that reflects this great diversity that God has put into the world. Nearly every text and book in the New Testament wrestles with the question of how do races and ethnicities become reconciled together in the gospel. It was the predominant question for the early church. And so when we ask that question, why today are we taking time to talk about the bicultural journey as a community? Why are we looking at the Treaty of Waitangi? Why are we engaging in some of these discussions? Yes, they can be controversial. Yes, they can be hard. Yeah, you can feel stink sometimes coming out of the end of it. But why is it worth the effort? Because it's about being faithful to the gospel of Jesus. And as a church, that's all I want us to be. I want us to be faithful to what God has called us to. And if this mattered so deeply to Peter, if it mattered so deeply to Paul, if it mattered so deeply to James and to John and to the early church leaders, then church, it should matter deeply to us. It's about faithfulness to the gospel. And the danger is, church, if we don't have those conversations, we compromise our witness to the gospel. And we can see this throughout church history. We, I mean, if you look at New Zealand's story, uh, Jay Ruka told some amazing stories of how the church was the church. We did the right thing. We witnessed to this gospel of reconciliation and we worked towards the treaty and that was amazing. Those stories should be celebrated. If you read more stories, you also read stories about where we got it wrong. Moments where church leaders went from being on the side of the two communities and then once the land war started, church leaders went from ministering alongside Maori communities to becoming the chaplain for the forces that were going through burning villages on their way down through the king country. I mean, here in Tauranga, our land over there, you've got the mission, the elms, that was a gift given by the local Maori people to the church to become a place of service and reconciliation, a place for the gospel to spread. And that was the purpose for which it was given. Once the land wars start, then you find the crown comes and they begin occupying that entire block of land and the church just holds that space for them. And it's from the land that was given as a gift towards reconciliation that you get the, get the battles of Gate Pa launched from that community. And so the danger is, for, for those of us who are in the dominant culture, and this is true through cultures throughout history, if you are in the dominant culture, if you don't have these conversations and if you don't start thinking about racial reconciliation in the text, the danger is we begin thinking that our cultural glasses are the gospel glasses. We begin thinking of our way of doing church and our way of reading the text is the only way to understand and read the text. And that gets us into messy places really quickly. That gets us into places where we start, uh, that would be the stories of missionaries who were telling Maori people to burn all of their carvings because through their cultural glasses they saw demonic carvings, not understanding that this is history. This is ancestry, this is story and we can get it wrong. And the danger is we begin pushing people away from the gospel because we're calling them to our cultural understanding of it rather than faithfulness to Jesus. Does that make sense? And we have to be aware of that. If we do not do the work to become aware of our glasses, 
Because we live in the dominant space, we have more power and we can easily end up forcing everyone to become like us. So the first step for us is often recognizing as a church that this, all of this, the way that you're seated, seated, the way that I'm talking, the screens, the lights, this is a cultural expression of Christianity. That's not bad, it's fine. But this isn't the only expression of Christianity. Any of you who have spent time overseas with different kind of church communities will recognize that it can be wildly different. I mean, I grew up in a Pentecostal church in Mexico City. In Mexico City, for the Pentecostal church, you'll have singing for an easy hour and 20 minutes. Easily an hour and 20 minutes. And then the pastor will easily speak for an hour, and then you'll have another 30 minutes of singing on top of that. And that doesn't include the testimony time in the middle where it's an open mic night and anyone, anyone can say anything they want and that can go on for 40 minutes. So when we went to church as a kid, that was like the day. That was the day. Or in a Pentecostal community, uh, at the end of every sermon, you had to have an altar call. If you did not have an altar call, then the church would get furious with you because they're like, we came to do business with God and now we can't do anything. You just... Close the door, now I'm meant to go home? They would tell a pastor off if there wasn't a space for a response altar call. Now, for those of us, we'd feel wildly uncomfortable with that. Like if I'm like, all right, guys, come on, give your lives to Jesus, come forward, we're gonna lay hands. Three quarters of us would be like, oh no, no way, nope, I'm out, going to another church, more comfortable there. What we have is a cultural expression, and that's not bad. We don't have to feel guilty for that, but we do need to recognize that it is a cultural expression. So on the one hand, we can hurt others if we're not aware of it. But here's the thing, and this is really, really important. For us to be faithful to the gospel, if we don't start having these conversations, if we don't start looking at racial reconciliation in the text, not only could we harm others, we ourselves will miss out on the fullness of the gospel. We in our church will miss out on what God really wants to do in us and in our lives. There was... um, a moment about a year ago, a year and a few months ago, we were doing a series on Revelation. And Lord Almighty, that was weird. You guys remember when you were doing that? And I was like, here's the text for the day. And the blood runs as high as a river for 90 miles wide. And then a beast with three horns, 18 eyes, and 15 noses came and spaketh. It was a weird time. But it was a really good time. I, I loved that text. And right as we got to the end of Revelation, one of the fascinating things that Revelation does is it presents this image of two different cities. One is the city of Babylon. And Babylon is characterized by greed. It's characterized by power. The kings of the earth worship Babylon because she has all the power in the world. The merchants of the earth go and come near her because they think they can get wealthy off of her. Babylon represents greed. It represents consumerism. It represents power structures that celebrate human will over God's glory. And the whole world falls in love with Babylon. Everybody loves her. She's beautiful. And then right after that, John then tells us the story of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is categorically different from Babylon. Where Babylon was focused on wealth and greed, in Jerusalem, generosity was the key principle. In Babylon, power was the most significant currency. In Jerusalem, it's characterized by the lamb who gives his life as a sacrifice to others. And we present these two different worlds two different kingdoms. And when we came to the end of Revelation, and we talked about it for a while, I did one of the few altery call things that we do at the church. And I said to us, church, we here at Golden Sands Baptist 
as we finish this text, God is offering us a choice of what kind of church we would like to be. And many of you here were there for that. We can be a church that sets up very comfortably in Babylon, and we could do a really good job. We could have all the programs. I could have all the catchy sermon series that's just edgy enough to make us feel special, but not really edgy to make us actually change or do anything different. We could have great kids programs that has your kids have a lot of fun on Fridays. We could build a great building that is beautiful and lots of people come to and say, wow, aren't these guys great? We could do that really, really easily. And God would still be faithful to us because he's faithful no matter what, if we decided to be a church in Babylon. I said, or we can choose to take a courageous path that we don't yet understand. We can choose to forsake the empire of Babylon, our comforts, our security, the things that we know and we love, and we can choose to follow Jesus out of Babylon through exile, through suffering, through pain, through martyrdom, and through exile we can discover this new Jerusalem, a different way of being church, a different sort of community that's not bound by the same culture of our times, but to do that would be hard, it'd be difficult, and it'd be painful. And on that day, I asked us to stand if you wanted to be a part of that church community, and we stood. And I really, when I go back to it, I think it's one of the most significant moments of our church life. It felt like we made a covenant there to seek a different sort of way of being. Well, church, let me tell you something. If we want to find our way out of Babylon, we need help from those who have already left it or know what it's like to be underneath the thumb of an empire. Our cultural glasses mean that we are always bent biased towards Babylon. We like power, we like security, we like wealth. And the strongholds that we face, that I've talked about often in this church, uh, the challenges that our community and our culture faces, strongholds around individualism, loneliness, uh, greed about how we're working so hard to have more and more and more, but we are finding ourselves less and less emotionally satisfied which leads to skyrocketing mental health issues and isolated relationships where more and more people are living alone. We talked about those issues. Church, if we want help breaking out of those, we might need to engage in relationship with people who don't have those same strongholds. And when we're talking about a bicultural journey, Māori do not have the same way of viewing the world that we do. They don't see things in individualistic terms, they see things in community. They read scripture differently, and Māori have had to struggle in their existence here in Aotearoa, to learn how to follow Jesus faithfully in the midst of empire, in the midst of the British empire and how that works, they have had needed to find creative ways to find a new sort of kingdom to witness to a different sort of gospel. If we want to be faithful to the gospel, then might we not need to be in relationship with those who know the paths before us? Those who can help call us out when our glasses are on, who can say to us, that's fine, but you're looking at that through the lens of Babylon can I invite you to look at it a different way? Church, if we want to be faithful to the gospel, I don't think we can be faithful unless we engage in relationship with Māori and the stories of the land and their form of spirituality and their form of following Jesus. We need it to be faithful as well. So what does that leave us to here? Um, I could give you a checklist of things to go and do. Um, in fact, I think that would make a lot of us comfortable. Like, for us to be bicultural, what I want you to do is sign up for a Tadeo course, read these books, go do that thing, we'll do one Marae trip, and there, we've done our bicultural journey. Tick! We've achieved it. But that's just not how it works. To engage in that journey is not a destination that we reach. It's a process by which we move towards. Fundamentally, it's about relationship. 
We need to be in relationship with the people of the land and the stories of the land. We need to let their stories affect our reading of the gospel. We need to let their stories help our understanding of this building and the story of our building and what it's meant to serve. We need to let their stories shape our understanding of what it means to be community and life together. It's in relationship, as Paul talked about, co-workers, co-heirs coming together, being woven together, not through assimilation, not through everybody becoming like one another, but through relationship, I think God will birth something significant, both in us and in the country. And I'm convinced one of the biggest move of God's that God is doing across Aotearoa is the rise in native Maori forms of Christianity. Their way of looking and seeing the world, coming together with the dominant culture, helps us to become a prophetic witness to the other nations of the world of what a different kingdom could be like. And if the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation, then we need to be reconciled before we can proclaim it. So I don't really have a checklist of these six things that we need to do, do these 12 things. I also don't have it in an individualized thing like you as an individual go home and do these four things. I don't know if it works that way. As much as I think it's for us as a community, together, to decide to walk together on that journey in relationship. And um, I hope this is okay. Uh, I want to recognize a key way that I think God is going to do that. Um, back in October, um, Papamoa Baptist, uh, which is our next door neighbor church, um, closed its doors. Um, they kind of closed up that community and they finished up in that space. And it was really sad for all of us. No one wants to see a, a church close. No one wants to see a community end in that way. But in those three months, God has done something really significant in our neighborhood that I want us to be aware of and ready to go on. God has been forming a new faith community out of Papamoa Baptist. God has been forming a faith community of predominantly Maori leaders, men and women, who have been faithfully serving Jesus in this land long before our church has arrived. And there's a new church plant that is gonna be starting there in May, a Baptist church with Maori leadership seeking to be the church in a Maori way. And so for us, church, I think when it talks about our bicultural relationship, a huge part of us is gonna be learning how to be in relationship with that community and allow them to shape us. And I want to honor the leaders who are those, of those who are here today. We have, I'm assuming, is that Paul and Tahuya? Yep, Paul and Tahuya Grant and Sandy Kerr. Uh, these are gonna be the three leaders of this new faith community. And, um, yeah. Today, in this community, as we have this conversation, I want to recognize the leadership that God has put on your life. I want to recognize the stories and the history that you carry that have existed in this land long before our communities here, because we're still new. We're still new to this place. And I want to recognize that God is doing something unique in your community, and here at Golden Sands Baptist, we long to celebrate and walk with you as faithfully as we can. We want to see you grow and succeed because if you grow and succeed, we have a chance at being more faithful at the gospel as well. You have a form of spirituality and an understanding of Jesus that we need to be faithful to the gospel here in Papamoa. And so I just want to commend you. I want to recognize your leadership. And I want to pray today that God will bless... Oh, man, sorry. I want to pray today that God will bless what your community and what he's doing there. And I know, church, for us, this might mean some hard conversations. Um, 
this might mean some difficult conversations as we talk about land and future and our colonial past. It'll be hard. But the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem only comes through exile. It's only through pain and leaving our comfort that we discover a whole new way of living. It's only through death that Christ brings resurrection. And so I want to commit to, as best as we can, to walk with you guys as you faithfully lead in that space and in that community. Um, gosh, I don't know what to do from here. Um, team, do you want to come up? And can we stand? Um, yeah. Let's pray for them. Um, would, would you guys be welcome to come up here? Sorry if I'm putting you on the spot. If this is wildly inappropriate, I apologize. Um, it's born out of a good heart. Amen. Beautiful. Can we stand and pray for this community? Ken, did you want to say something? Oh, you'll pray. Awesome. Um, church, I'm se- I, I genuinely mean it. I don't know what the destination looks like. I don't know what the end result will be. I, it's not about us just putting more Maori designs up or singing more Maori songs. It's about a relationship, and it's about faithfulness to the gospel. That's the core of what we're longing for here. And so let's pray to covenant with this community to walk with them and allow their voices to impact us. Allow their way of seeing things to help us to be more faithful to the gospel. Let's pray, church. God, I thank you for what you are doing here in Papamoa. Lord, it would have been hard to dream about how all these things were coming together, but Jesus, we can see your faithfulness and how you are weaving these stories. Paul and Tahuya, who I know have been serving in this region for a long, long time, whose family has been serving in this Fenua for a long, long time. God, we recognize that. We recognize that story. We recognize the mana that they bring. And Lord, as the, the next closest Baptist church in the area, in Jesus' name, we just say welcome. Welcome. We're so glad that God has you here. Thank you for being in this space. And we pray for a sense of, Jesus, would you bind our communities together? Would you help us to learn from one another? And I pray on behalf of Golden Sands Baptist, Lord, would you give us a soft heart and listening ears, willing to learn and listen? Jesus, I pray you give us the courage to be quick to repent, quick to say sorry, slow to speak, and eager to learn. Because God, you are doing something significant in this community. You are birthing something amazing that has already been grown. The seeds have been here for a long time. And in Jesus' name, we celebrate it. And we commit ourselves as a community to walk with you, the Shiloh community. As God leads you, we want to walk with you so that his kingdom might come in our neighborhood that racial reconciliation and the gospel might spread and cover over this land as the waters cover the sea. Jesus, you were doing something significant 
and we worship you here. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the faithfulness of this group of people whose heart is after yours. And, and Lord, I just want to pray your blessing on them and on this whole new church plant. Lord, to have a different expression uh, where your Holy Spirit can break out in all sorts of new ways with a different expression that, that meets people where they are and not in a particular way. Lord, I just ask for your blessing. Help us to make it easy for them. I pray that you'd help us to pray for them. And Lord, that uh, together, as we journey together, we've got one goal in mind, but two different expressions of getting there. Mm. And so we ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. Do you guys want to, you don't have to say anything. If, if you want to, you're welcome to. <laughs> oh, kia ora, everybody. My name is Paul. This is my wife, Tahui, and this is Sandy. And uh, we, we're very honoured to be here. And um, uh, like Pastor Colin already said, we'd really love to be one. You know, I know that's been the intention right from the start to be one. And I know Colin at some stage would invite me to, to give my testimony here, I'm sure. And I'd love to. Uh, in, in short, um, the Lord has brought this together in a space of maybe two or three months. And uh, that's how my Lord Jesus works. And um, so we're very excited to be here. And um, you'll hear again from me, I'm sure. So, and, and I just want to uh, honour Pastor Colin. His sermon was just beautiful. It was lovely how he brought everything together and um, so precise and so gifted. I, and I really honour you, Colin. That was beautiful. And, and I know Brother Ken, he knows my parents. And he's seen me right from a young fella growing up in Tapuki Baptist <laughs> Church. So um, that's how long I've been in the Baptist movement. And... Uh, it's great to be back. Amen. And thank you, everybody. Amen. Amen. Um, team, would you lead us in a final song as we worship together?